The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Welcome back to Human Voices Wake Us, and tonight we're going to hear ten or so poems about the season of autumn, about this time of year, and I realized only after I recorded all of it that perhaps my favorite of all of these, at least my favorite this year, that's the fun thing about doing episodes like this, is that things are changing uh, constantly from week to week or year to year, but my favorite of them I realized was actually the last one that I read that closes this episode, and I thought, what the hell, why don't we just have it open the episode as well? It is from a poet named Lawrence Binion, a British poet who lived from 1865 or 1869, pardon me, until 1943, and I haven't been able to stop reading this poem this week. It is from a longer work called The Burning of the Leaves. I believe this is only the first part, but what a first part. This is what Lawrence Binion has to say. Now is the time for the burning of the leaves. They go to the fire. The nostril pricks with smoke, wandering slowly into a weeping mist. Brittle and blotched, ragged and rotten sheaves, A flame seizes the smoldering ruin and bites on stubborn stalks that crackle as they resist. The last hollyhock's fallen tower is dust. All the spices of June are a bitter reek. All the extravagant riches spent and mean, all burns. The reddest rose is a ghost. Sparks whirl up to expire in their mist. The wild fingers of fire are making corruption clean. Now is the time for stripping the spirit bare. Time for the burning of days ended and done. Idle solace of things that have gone before. Rootless hopes and fruitless desire are there. Let them go to the fire with never a look behind. The world that was ours is a world that is ours no more. They will come again, the leaf and the flower, to arise from squalor of rottenness into the old splendor, and magical scents to a wandering memory bring the same glory to shine upon different eyes. Earth cares for her own ruins, not for ours. Nothing is certain, only the certain spring. And so we could just sit with that for a long time. But let's go and listen to a few more poems about this time of year, right after this message. Well, I was about to introduce these poems by saying something like, 
Uh, here is an escape from what is going on in the world. Here are some poems about autumn. But of course, what do we associate with autumn? Let's look at uh, two poems probably written about 200, 150 years apart from each other. The first is from the British poet Walter Savage Landor, and it's a short poem, and this is how it goes. The leaves are falling, so am I. The few late flowers have moisture in the eye, so have I too. Scarcely on any bough is heard, joyous or even unjoyous bird, the whole wood through. Winter may come. He brings but nigher his circle, yearly narrowing, to the fire where old friends meet. Let him. Now heaven is overcast, and spring and summer both are past, and all things sweet. So that really doesn't get us away from the things of the world does it? And it doesn't matter, I suppose, either uh, what year you might be listening to this episode in. This is These are the kinds of feelings that many of us simply have um, in the autumn, uh, where uh, things are dying and things will be covered over and they will be reborn in the spring. But we have to get through the part about the dying, don't we? Here's the second poem that I was going to read. Uh, and this is from the late Louise Glick, who just died within the last month, actually, actually, uh, maybe two weeks ago. She lived from 1943 to 2023. And this is a very early poem of hers that is simply called All Hallows. And she says, Even now, this landscape is assembling. The hills darken, the oxen sleep in their blue yoke, the fields having been picked clean, the sheaves bound evenly and piled at the roadside among sinkfoil, as the toothed moon rises. This is the barrenness of harvest or pestilence, and the wife leaning out the window with her hand extended as in payment, and the seeds distinct gold calling, Come here, come here, little one. And the soul creeps out of the tree. And you begin to understand why this time of year, of course, uh, was associated with the, uh, the holiday that Halloween is based on, where the, uh, of Samhain, where the veil between the living and the dead was believed to be open for one night of the year so that there could be congress between the two, people could pass back and forth, and then the Christian and other observances of All Saints Day, of commemorating the dead. There seems to be just a need to do this, an, uh, a need and an awareness to just notice what is going on in the world, even though we are no longer a primarily agricultural society in America or in 
many of the places where this podcast is being heard, um, still you just see it uh, in the weather, in the day, in the leafless trees, in the louder wind, in the cold, don't we? So these are the kinds of things that I wanted to try to get to today. And it is interesting that a great deal of this does, a great deal of these poems do call on the landscape, even though we aren't quite as tied to the landscape or to agriculture or to uh, the old panic, you might say, of if we don't have a good harvest, we literally won't have very much to eat between now and the spring. Uh, Even though we aren't living that kind of life anymore, maybe it is still just rummaging around in the back of our brains what those impulses were, what that kind of life was. But also I do think it is just as I said, um, it is still something undeniable that you just sense in the atmosphere, uh, whether a sense of actual dread or just of the, the play, isn't it, of what Halloween is, not of actual terror or fright, but uh, just of strangeness and uh, spookiness as well. Um, let's see, this is a good one. I have a list here. I was going to try and read them, read them in some kind of order, but I don't think we need to. Uh, we have John Keats, who lived from 1795 to 1821. He has uh, a longer poem that is simply called To Autumn, but I prefer this last stanza uh, to the entire poem. And this is what the last stanza says. Uh, where are the songs of spring? I... Where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river shallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies. And full-grown lambs, loud bleat from hilly-born, Hedge crickets sing, and now, with treble soft, The redbreast whistles from a garden croft, And gathering swallows twitter in the skies. And thank you, John Keats, for that little stanza there. One of the most wonderful poets that I've come across lately is the uh, Welsh poet uh, Vernon Watkins, who I believe was a good friend of Dylan Thomas. And uh, since Dylan Thomas had the much more uh, bohemian reputation and had the the luck, you might say, of dying young, um, he obviously is much more famous and renowned and read these days. But Vernon Watkins uh, is something else entirely. Um, it's kind of hard to choose from among the sort of seasonal and rural poems that he has written uh, to just choose one about autumn. But I think a poem called For a Wine Festival is a good... as is as good a choice as any. This is what 
Vernon Watkins had to say. He lived from 1906 until 1967 for a wine festival. Now the late fruits are in. Now moves the leaf-starred year down in the sun's decline. Stoop, have no fear. Glance at the burdened tree. Dark is the grape's wild skin. Dance, limbs, be free. Bring the bright clusters here and crush them into wine. Acorns from yellow boughs drop to the listening ground. Spirits who never tire dance, dance your round. Old roots, old thoughts and dry, catch as your footprints rouse, flames where they fly, knowing the year has found its own more secret fire. Nothing supreme shall pass, earth to an ember gone, wears but the death it feigns, and still burns on. One note more true than time, and shattered falls as glass. Steal, steal from rhyme, take from the glass that shone the vintage that remains. And at least for my money, I will take that over uh, his more uh, famous uh, contemporary. Actually, I'll read another bit from Vernon Watkins. Uh, in the episode I did earlier this year about poems uh, for the spring, uh, I read part of Vernon Watkins' poem, The Tributary Seasons, which takes each season in its turn. And I think it is worth reading um, his section on the autumn. And uh, this is what it says. Might this indeed have been the prime, that Eden state of lasting time? Men reap the grain and tend the vine, heaping their tributes, bread and wine. At last late leaves bright-colored bring, turning time's keys, those fruits foreshadowed by the spring. Acorns and nuts restore their trees, as certain jewels have the power to magnetize and guide the hour. So seeds before our eyes are strewn, fast hidden in the pod's cocoon. These die, yet in themselves they keep all seasons cradled in their sleep. Guarding the lost through calms and storms, these are the year's eternal forms, an alphabet whose letters all mark out a sacred festival. The birth of vision from these urns, into whose silence dust returns, fills the dense wood. St. Hubert's reign stopped the swift horse, for there again a stag between its antlers holds heaven's unique glory and the world's. Tree of beginning, autumn tree, divine imaginations tree. And thank you, Vernon Watkins, for
for that bit as well. If we go now to, let's see, let's see, uh, here we are. The British poet Francis Cornford, who lived from 1886 until 1960, she has just this small poem, again, about the time of year and about the dead. And this is just called All Souls Night. And uh, just a tiny little piece here, uh, six lines. My love came back to me under the November tree, shelterless and dim. He put his hand upon my shoulder. He did not think me strange or older, nor I him. That's worth rereading again, isn't it? All souls night. My love came back to me under the November tree, shelterless and dim. He put his hand upon my shoulder. He did not think me strange or older, nor I him. That is Francis Cornford. That reminds me of, uh, of a bit of advice from uh, Ted Hughes, where he's trying to uh, tell the mother of, a, of an aspiring poet to try to give her advice, to try to give the aspiring poet advice uh, through the mother as well. <clears throat> and what he is saying basically is, um, if, you, if what you are trying to say uh, can only be expressed in poetry, then you might consider being a poet. This is something like that. Um, a short story about this might be a good short story. A novel, a movie, a painting, um, a piece of music that could suggest all of these moods. But what else but a small rhyming poem in six lines could suggest as much as this? And uh, this is the power of poetry, isn't it? Um, anybody that I meet during the day, probably, many of them who don't care much for poetry, could probably uh, memorize this poem um, within a day. And you could just go around with it for days and come back to your mind for years, just imagining a story that goes along with it. or if you end up being someone who is dealing with loss, the loss of a loved one, uh, it might suddenly have a great deal uh, personally just to say to you. And then we can go, I'm trying not to have too many uh, big and obvious names, but this seemed to be a good one to include here. This is William Butler Yeats who lived from 1865 to 1939. This is one of his mid-career poems, you might say. This was published in, in the 1919 collection, The Wild Swans at Cool. Uh, and this is uh, Yeats looking out and seeing the swans. And swans are very important in his poetry. You think especially of his poem, Lita and the Swan, and its connection with Greek mythology and what violence to women does to uh, 
or its place in history and what it does uh, in our own uh, personal lives and just of how powerful the themes of mythology are. But this is just him seeing the swans in an autumn day and the kind of mood it puts him in. This is William Butler Yeats. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw, before I had well finished, all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful, among what rushes will they build, by what lake's edge or pool, delight men's eyes when I wake some day to find they have flown away. Those last three lines are worth a repeat. By what lake's edge or pool, delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away. Now, for me, the clue in this poem is him saying that he came upon nine and fifty swans, at least to me. That reminds me of the the way of um, of counting multitudes in the uh, Irish myths and the Irish epics and in the uh, medieval annals and folklore and such. And it takes me back to the transformations that many Irish heroes or just Irish characters take when they become swans or swans become humans. And back beyond that is simply the story that seems to be all over the place throughout the world of the swan maiden, the swan who becomes a woman, the woman who becomes a swan and falls in love with the man or seduces the man or uh, she lands at the edge of the pond or the lake and removes her wings and goes for a swim and she finds out later that someone has taken her wings and she can no longer fly and all the rest of it. All of this seems to be uh, bound up in Yeats just watching these birds and thinking of the time of year. If we go to Edward Thomas, he was the great friend of uh, English poet, great friend of Robert Frost. He lived from 1878 to 1917. 
I think, isn't it, that when uh, Robert Frost came to England to try to uh, make a bit more of a name for himself than he had made for himself in America, uh, I think it was Edward Thomas that he ended up having a close friendship with, and I can't remember which collection it is uh, of Robert Frost's, but there is one, isn't there, that is dedicated to Edward Thomas, and this is Edward Thomas's poem called Digging, and I made the remark a while back that it might be heresy to some, but I think this is a better poem called Digging than Seamus Heaney's uh, poem that is also uh, called Digging and which seems to have made, or at least helped along, Heaney's reputation. But in any case, uh, this is Edward Thomas in his poem Digging. Today I think only with sense, since dead leaves yield, and bracken, and wild carrot seed, and the square mustard field. Odors that rise when the spade wounds the root of tree, rose, currant, raspberry, or goutweed, rhubarb, or celery. The smokes smell too flowing from where a bonfire burns the dead, the waste, the dangerous, and all to sweetness turns. It is enough to smell, to crumble the dark earth, while the robin sings over again sad songs of autumn mirth. That's Edward Thomas. We can go now to Thomas Hardy, who lived from 1840 to 1928, and as always, I, it's hard not to think of what a huge amount of time uh, that truly was to live through, just in terms of how much literature and poetry changed. But this is a late poem of his, which I believe is just looking back towards the earlier time in his life. This is a poem called A Sheep Fair, from Thomas Hardy. And again, the, you keep coming back to the, to the rural and the agricultural, even though, as I said, this isn't really a part of our lives anymore. But some part of it uh, still does seem to speak to us, at least, doesn't it? At least uh, suggest why we still have an attachment to poems or images like these, even if we have no actual... Uh, need to go back to that kind of a life. It's an interesting thing to think about, but this is a sheep fair. The day arrives of the autumn fair, and torrents fall. Though sheep in throngs are gathered there, ten thousand all, sodden with hurdles round them reared, and lot by lot the pens are cleared. And the auctioneer wrings out his beard, and wipes his book, bedrenched and smeared, and rakes the rain from his face with the edge of his hand as torrents fall. The wool of the ewes is like a sponge with the day-long rain. Jammed tight to turn or lie or lunge, they strive in vain. Their horns are soft as fingernails, their shepherds reek against the rails. The tied dogs 
soak with tucked-in tails, the buyer's hat-brims fill like pails, which spill small cascades when they shift their stand in the day-long rain. Time has trailed lengthily since met at Pummery Fair. Those panting thousands in their wet and woolly wear, and every flock long since has bled, and all the dripping buyers have sped, and the horse auctioneer is dead, who going, going, so often said, as he consigned to doom each meek, mewed band at Pummery Fair. And there you are. When you encounter uh, an imagination like that, uh, the guy who uh, rakes the rain from his face with the edges of his hand as torrents fall, um, the tide dogs soaked with tucked-in tails, the buyer's hat brims filled like pails, um, that is something that might as well be written in one of Hardy's novels, and who knows, it probably was. Um, the bit of advice that I mentioned from Ted Hughes only a few minutes ago, uh, can be ignored, you might say, by someone like Thomas Hardy, by a huge imagination, by someone like that. Because, of course, Dickens was able to do it in prose, but not in poetry. Uh, Shakespeare was able to do it in poetry, but uh, certainly not in any prose that we know about. Um, Thomas Hardy is one of those few people who is able to uh, conjure up uh, scenes, uh, images, stories, uh, individual people that are unforgettable, scenes like this that are unforgettable. Um, he's one of the few people who is able to do that, uh, both in prose and in poetry, and we are lucky to have so many of his poems of that kind. Let me just check one thing here. There might be another hardy poem worth sharing here, but then again, there might not be. No, I don't have it here. That's okay. But now we can go to a poem by Ted Hughes, who lived from 1930 until 1998. Um, this is from his, uh, it's his second collection, isn't it? Yes, his second collection called Looper Call came out in the late 1950s, was it, or is it early 1960s? Looper Call came out in 1960, and this is just Ted Hughes' poem called November. This is what it says. The month of the drowned dog. After long rain, the land was sodden as the bed of an ancient lake, treed with iron and birdless. In the sunk lane, the ditch, a seep silent all summer, made brown foam with a big voice. That, and my boots on the lane's scrubbed stones, and the gullied leaves against the hills hanging silence, mist silvering the droplets on the bare thorns, slower than the change of daylight. In a let of the ditch, a tramp was bundled asleep, face tucked down into beard, drawn in under his hair like a hedgehog's. I took him for dead, but his stillness 
separated from the death of the rotting grass and the ground, a wind chilled and a fresh comfort tightened through him, each hand stuffed deeper into the other's sleeve. His ankles, bound with sacking and hairy band, rubbed each other, resettling. The wind hardened. A puff shook a glittering from the thorns, and again the rain's dragging gray columns smudged the farms. In a moment the fields were jumping and smoking. The thorns quivered, riddled with the glassy verticals. I stayed on under the welding cold, watching the tramp's face glisten and the drops on his coat flash and darken. I thought what strong trust slept in him as the trickling furrows slept and the thorn roots in their grip on darkness and the buried stones taking the weight of winter, the hill where the hare crouched with clenched teeth. Rain plastered the land till it was shining like hammered lead, and I ran, and in the rushing wood, shuddered by a black oak, leaned. The keeper's gibbet had owls and hawks by the neck, weasels, a gang of cats, crows, some stiff, weightless, twirled like dry bark bits in the drilling rain. Some still had their shape, had their pride with it, hung chins on chests, patient to outwit these worst days that beat their crowns bare and dripped from their feet. And I was waiting for that at the end there for Hughes's animals to get in, especially the crow. Um, but there we are, Hughes uh, making of autumn a terrible, terrible rainstorm. The last poem that I will read from tonight is by Lawrence Binion, who lived from 1869 until 1943. And from what I know about him, he was a friend of Ezra Pound's, in the 19-teens, I suppose, and he has the distinction, I suppose, of having done one of the best translations of Dante's Divine Comedy into English, where he is trying to match Dante's Terza Rima. I've never really been able to get into his translation of Dante, but that's what I think of whenever I see Lawrence Binion's name, um, at least until uh, I uh, came upon this poem of his, and this is the one that I will leave you with tonight. This is Lawrence Binion, The Burning of the Leaves. Now is the time for the burning of the leaves. They go to the fire, the nostril pricks with smoke, wandering slowly into a weeping mist, brittle and blotched, ragged and rotten sheaves, a flame seizes the smoldering ruin and bites on stubborn stalks that crackle as they resist. The last hollyhock's fallen tower is dust. All the spices of June are a bitter reek. All the extravagant riches spent and mean, all burns. 
The reddest rose is a ghost. Sparks whirl up to expire in the mist. The wild fingers of fire are making corruption clean. Now is the time for stripping the spirit bare. Time for the burning of days ended and done. Idle solace of things that have gone before. Rootless hopes and fruitless desire are there. Let them go to the fire with never a look behind. The world that was ours is a world that is ours no more. They will come again, the leaf and the flower, to arise from squalor of rottenness into the old splendor, and magical scents to a wandering memory bring the same glory to shine upon differing eyes. Earth cares for her own ruins, not for ours. Nothing is certain, only the certain spring. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.